Welcome to the Women in Sport and Exercise Academic Network podcast. I am your host, Dr. Jackie Forsyth, and also co-founder of the network. The purpose of the Women in Sport and Exercise Academic Network is to grow, strengthen, and promote research on women in sport and exercise with the ultimate goal of optimizing women's athletic success and their participation. With these podcasts, we wish to bring you information from leading academics who are researching about women in sport and exercise and provide you with advice and support for the exercising female. Please remember our disclaimer that the opinions, content and recommendations contained within our podcast are for general information only and should not be substituted for medical advice, treatment or diagnosis. Julie Harrington has been British Cycling's Chief Executive since March 2017. Before this role, Julie amassed almost 15 years experience in senior leadership roles in a sports environment. In her former role as Group Operations Director at the Football Association, Julie was responsible for running both Wembley Stadium and St George's Park, in addition to women's and development team games away from Wembley. Since joining British Cycling, Julie has overseen the implementation of the organisation's action plan following the Cycling Independent Review, as well as widespread changes to allow for compliance with the Code for Sports Governance. In this podcast, I asked Julie about her career within what is predominantly a male-dominated environment and what barriers she has personally encountered. We also talked about the changing landscape and culture in British cycling and the roles that Julie is taking to increase representation of females in cycling at all levels, such as flexible working conditions and changes in the hiring process. We finished by focusing on research, such as the need for a whole sector approach, also a project British Cycling are involved with alongside the University of Glasgow, and what Julie feels is the research that needs to be done in the future. Okay, so it's lovely to have you here, Julie. Just to start with, let's just talk about your career journey, really, because you've been British Cycling's chief executive for a couple of years now, which is really a high profile job. A lot of our members of our Women in Sport and Exercise Academic Network, they might have some aspirations to achieve success in fairly male-dominated sporting environments, but at high executive levels. So can you tell us a little bit about your route into your current career and how you got there, maybe what the challenges were along the way? Well, prior to working in sport, I actually had a, a first career in brewing, came up as a marketeer. Um, so from quite a, an early stage in my career, I was in what you would describe as quite a male-dominated leadership environment. Brewing, followed by horse racing, followed by football, and now cycling. So I was, you know, from a gender point of view, I was cutting my teeth from, from quite an early age. And I've really seen over the last 20 years some huge changes in, in that, um, in that regard. But, you know, looking back on those early years in brewing, 
where you would say that there was quite a lot of discrimination on the grounds of gender at that time. I was the first female to have a company car, for example, and you can imagine all the comments about um, I was going to crash it because I was a woman and all those sorts of things. Can't, you know, you can't imagine that happening nowadays. But one one of the things that brewing taught me was a really customer centric approach. And now, rather than competing for people's leisure time or leisure pounds to spend in the pub, I'm I'm doing the opposite. I'm competing for their leisure time, but still taking that approach as a marketeer to get more people doing exercise more often as as opposed to just getting them to, to spend it in the bar. And do you think things have changed then over time in terms, I mean, you said that example of the car situation. Do you think there's been a change or a shift in culture towards women in in certain roles like yours? Um, I I would have certainly seen a a huge improvement driven by having more more females in leadership positions in successful organisations. That doesn't mean to say that there, that there aren't still pockets. And one of the things that attracted me to cycling was as an organisation. Um, so I, I was working in football at the time and I, I'm watching from a distance some of the issues that were happening in, in British cycling. So there was a, a highly publicised case, um, Jess Varnish, who whistle blew in effect to, uh, around discriminatory behaviour um, just the language used by coaches and so on. Uh, and whilst that was horrendous, it was really interesting for, for me to, uh, and I, I was attracted to the role because I thought I could really make some positive changes. But in terms of the number of applicants that we get for leadership roles within cycling, and this was very similar in football, you do get a lot a lot fewer applicants from from female candidates and understanding potentially some of those barriers um, some of them will come from those highly publicized cases that people think that's maybe not an atmosphere for me equally talking for people in in this um, sport and exercise medicine field cycling the same with lots of elite sports the events tend to happen (laughs) Um, at evenings and weekends and involve a huge amount of travel and being away from home for potentially weeks, sometimes even months. And when I've talked to to some female candidates about um, the attractiveness of some of those roles because of traditional gender roles, they have been put off by the, the fact that you may be working a lot of evenings, a lot of weekends and, and being away from home a great deal. And is there anything you can do that or is there anything that British cycling are doing to encourage more females into those roles? Well, one of the first things we're doing is trying to to increase representation in people who participate in cycling. So broadening the base of the pyramid, if you like, for women, because only 17% of our members, so if we've got 165,000 members, so people who will cycle pretty frequently, and only 17% of those are female. So from the word go, we've got less people, less um, women taking part in cycling. And then, so as you go up that sort of leadership pillar, it's smaller and smaller. 
So number one, we're, we're working on what broadening the base so that we, um, we we've done doing a huge amount to just get more women on bikes. Um, and then in terms of then being attracted into those roles, we've in, introduced flexible working, which was a really easy thing to do when I when I first arrived, trying to um, increase our investment um, in the digital um, side of the business so that people can work in a more agile way remotely, uh, just simple things. But the, the main thing we're doing is, is talking to our workforce to find out what is the culture like um, and what improvements can we make? Um, because often some quite small adjustments can make it more attractive for women. We, we have a, an annual culture survey now, so we're just going, we, we, we will shortly be having our third set of annual results. And some of the questions we ask in there are specifically around what does it feel like if you're a woman working here, but then for our entire um, workforce, do they feel that this is a place where women can thrive and be promoted and uh, and we've seen a real positive shift in the responses in the last couple of years and hoping that that will improve this year. And what about the actual recruitment stage? So when people do get involved in say British Cycling and there are, and you said there are far few women applying for those jobs, do you think that there could be a case for more positive discrimination in that case given that women from maybe a cycling background wouldn't have had those same opportunities that males would have had in terms of coaching or the facilities that have been available to them or the access or that they've had limited experience with things like coaching, sports science support compared to males just because of other outside pressures that maybe they have to deal with like for instance childcare issues and things like that. Do you think so, there's a, there could be a case for positive discrimination in the hiring process? Absolutely. Um, and I think it, trying to get high-performing teams, you, you need a variety, uh, you know, you need diversity around that table. So what would have been an exclusively male leadership team in British cycling generally, but also the Great Britain cycling team, is being held back. It's being held back because it hasn't got that diversity around the table. So there absolutely needs to be some positive discrimination to get that balanced leadership team. And there's a a range of things that we have been doing, but are also open to doing more of, which is you, you have to proactive, rather than just get a job advert out there and wait and see who, who pops up, you have to make sure that that opportunity um, is seen in as broad a sphere as possible. And so that might mean going outside your core sport and working who will have the transferable skills that we can build their confidence to apply. And we have been criticised a little bit for this. And um, and I'm sure it's something that your um, listeners will recognise in that, People from the core of the sport will look at somebody new coming in who we may have recru- recruited from a more traditionally female-friendly sport, for example, netball or hockey, where 
and they'll go, what do they know about cycling? And and I, I genuinely feel that a, a, a guy coming in would not have to justify to the same extent their credentials. Uh, and it's something that I've faced quite regularly throughout my career where you almost feel the need to, to just, you know, I may have come from football, but here are my transferable skills. Uh, and just trying to make sure that any candidates that we are bringing to the table or sort of co-opting, if you like, to, to get that balance around my leadership team, that, that they don't feel that need to, to justify their credentials because actually they are around that leadership table because they br- they're bringing with them some key transferable skills. Um, but you know, further back in any women's you know, potential candidate's career, we want to establish things like coaching bursaries, for example, where if there are people who are riding and, and they're considering going into coaching, but you know, there, there are financial issues around that, um, that we can offer them a bursary so that they can get those development opportunities um, that maybe traditionally women wouldn't have had. So kind of back to you, because you mentioned about some of the discrimination potentially that could exist. Did you Have you ever felt in your career that you've had to, because you talked about having to fight your corner or prove yourself or prove your value, prove your worth. Do you feel as though you've had to do that in your career? And have there been moments where you've thought, do you know, this is just not worth it? Um, because I'm almost fighting a losing battle or have you been resilient and or, or or not even noticed that there's any anything any sort of sexual discrimination or underpinning there that could have affected your progress um I've absolutely noticed it it isn't something that you'd, you you would you would just say oh you know and there are some women who'll go I don't recognize this and now my my career journey's been without any discriminatory behavior I absolutely recognize it but I am quite a resilient individual you know and, and everybody's got different parts of their makeup um, and so there there are times when you you hear it you recognize it you call people out or not you know when I was younger I certainly wouldn't have called people out quite as much um, but um, but I am pretty resilient and so it is water off a duck's back to a a, a certain extent there are things you know so when I was working in football in the and I joined football from horse racing but I've been a football fan for years um and I remember in my sort of early days of being appointed social media comments about will I will I know the offside rule and (laughs) so if if a bloke had gone from horse racing to football nobody would doubt that he'd know the offside rule um, so um but is it a barrier to me doing my job no it's more of a more of an irritation and again it's it, probably part of my personal makeup it, it it actually gives me a bit more of a fire in my belly to to do a good job and is that then what the kind of advice you'd give to other females just to be like a duck and have your water get off your back or to be resilient um, what kind of thing would you say well, I've got a growing up female daughter and I always sort of check myself in terms of would I be comfortable with my daughter going into that environment? Uh, and absolutely, absolutely not. That 
I, I don't think people should have to, um, you know, say that it's water off a duck's back. That um, because I, I'd I'd want to protect my daughter from having those sorts of experiences. And you know, the advice I've given her is is probably more about having a bit of courage to to call out when things are wrong. You know, if, if there's something that you just think is not right. And when, certainly when I was younger, I looked at situations, you know, meetings when I, that I was in, conversations that I was part of, and, and they were just wrong. But I didn't have the courage to call it out. And I, I'm really, uh, I really admire some of the younger generation. I do think there, are, there has been a massive societal shift that a lot of the younger generation, I see it, it just in our, you know, little working environment that they just won't take the same rubbish that maybe an older generation did part of that's you know the things like the me too movement um but it's what people are seeing in broader society and role models that they're seeing in in tv and probably going back to british cycling and the the whistleblowing behavior a few years ago that it's not acceptable and things will things will change. Do you think there's still some of that for maybe a female cyclist, a female athlete, that in order to be successful, in order to get medals, in order to get in the team, that they have to comply? And there may be things that they're not happy with, but so that they don't lose their chance of being successful or getting into the Olympic squad that they might have to adjust their moral compass kind of thing in order to fit in? Um, I hope not. Um, I do hear, you know, uh, certainly pressure around team selection, where, whether they are male or female. You do hear feedback from athletes right across elite sport that, you know, one of their big fears is not being selected. And... You want to be absolutely sure that selection decisions are being made based on, uh, you know, sport is a meritocracy um, and you want selection decisions to be made on um, a performance basis rather than, you know, favouritism or um, somebody seen as a trouble causer so that they're not they're not selected. That, you know, that's not to say that there aren't attitudinal factors as well as performance and people um, being having the ability to to work um, as a team. But for certainly adding things like real transparency on the selection criteria does give people the, the opportunity to challenge selection decisions. But I, I would be really hopeful that that women in cycling did not feel um, that they were treated any differently than men from a selection point of view. And do you think with the changes that British Cycling have made, that you've made in particular, in terms of redressing some of the issues that uh, British Cycling has had, such as things in the media like drug taking, bullying, discrimination, do you think there's a fear that because you've made it more transparent, like you've said, 
that there is a risk that the future success in terms of medals might falter? Or do you think these are two completely different things? Look, they absolutely should. You should be able to have a great culture and still win. Um, is there a possibility that we will win less medals? Absolutely, because you know th- this is this is a, a, a business that is based on a relationships, and coach athlete relationship is a really important one. We've had some quite significant changes, so people have left the organisation, and just if you're a, a, an extremely talented coach but you're using discriminatory language you you have to leave yeah <laughs> um, well you have to be re-educated and so uh, of course there is a, a risk in the short term that our medal tally could go backwards I, and i think the whole of the uk sporting landscape is shifting towards yes we want to win but we want to win in the right way and we don't want to break people while we're doing it. We don't want to leave people with poor mental health. We want to make sure that athlete welfare is at the centre of what we're doing. And I think the, the British public would respond to that. We'll see what happens in Tokyo. <laughs> and do you think for females specifically in the future, I mean, maybe not in the immediate future, but in the long term future, 10, 20 years time, are there any issues that are going to be at the forefront for females competing or participating in cycling? So we, we do a lot of research in this field in terms of what are the barriers for, for particularly young women and girls because the, the, there's lots of research in this area and we've worked with Sport England um, who funded some research to understand what are the barriers to people continuing to compete and what are the triggers for people dropping out because the drop-off rates for women are much higher than men, as we all know. And with cycling in particular, um, it's seen as what they call the the sort of faff factor. (laughs) You do act, you you, you can't put your trainers on and just go out for a run. There is a sort of degree of faff that, that goes with, Get, getting your bike out but it's the whole across the whole of sport it is young women being comfortable with getting a bit sweaty and having helmet hair <laughs> and that whole sort of instagram generation being con- actually seeing the positivity in looking fit and healthy and active and that's going to need positive role models. And we, you know, we look luckily enough, we have quite a few um, people like Dame Sarah Story, who um, is back in competition after a second child um, and just showing that um, it is possible to come back and compete and win if you want to. So, so we've got those role models, but it's a challenge for across sports, but keeping women you know really enjoyed cycling as a a young girl as they grow into their teenage years keeping them interested in staying fit healthy active but for those who want to to continue competing as well is a is a key area of risk for us 
So you mentioned there some research that you were looking at in terms of ensuring longevity in a career for females, for instance. And you said that there weren't any specific research grants that British Cycling have. But is there any way that individuals could get involved somehow with research associated with British Cycling or maybe have access to some of the cyclists that they could do research on? How would individuals go about doing that with you? So there, there are a few um, bodies across sport that your, your listeners may be aware of that fund research. What tends to happen is rather than it be cycling specific, it will be sector specific. So UK sport, in terms of that elite athlete and um, real performance driven research, UK sports tend to, to fund those. Um, and within UK sport, the, the sort of fields of sport and exercise medicine, performance analysis, always just trying to make sure that we're at the forefront as a country, because a lot of it is transferable across the system. So biomechanical research in cycling may be just as relevant to rowing. And what we found is this approach across the whole sector, it, it being UK sport driven rather than sitting in silos in the sport, has been really, really productive for us in terms of the whole growth in Olympic success for this country. Um, so, for example, some of the skin suit technology that our cyclists have used, you've also seen in winter sports for the you know people in luge or whatever. So I think anybody um, who at the sort of very top end of sport and, and exercise medicine, um, UK sport would be my first calling point. But then in terms of participation and just general sport and recreation for health, whether that's physical or mental health, Sport England um, and the other um, home country sports councils, so Sport Scotland and Sport Wales, again, are taking this sector-wide approach because the reason, for example, young girls may fall out of cycling um, it is absolutely transferable to, to other sports. Um, and we're doing a couple of other specific cycling pieces of activity, but we try and stay hooked in through UK Sport uh, and Sport England. The areas that we would deal directly on are more about, um, we're quite unique in that cycling is also a mode of transport. So there's quite a lot of um, research out there in terms of people people who commute to work are half as likely to have a heart attack or stroke and all these sorts of things one interesting project that we've been working on is with the university of glasgow working with our main sponsor hsbc uk to do a study on their workforce sort of using their workforce as guinea pigs to try and show the case for employers to encourage their their workforce to commute by bike or, act, or other means of act travel so what's the business case for it, basically? So if there is a, a reduction in absenteeism, an increase in productivity, uh, and if the University of Glasgow can prove it for um, one workforce, it actually gives a really compelling argument to go out and speak to other major employers about the business case for encouraging their employees to do more active travel. Um, and 
um, you know, that, that's just one example of a research project that we're doing ourselves with um, University of Glasgow rather than through Sport England and UK Sport. And what about the future for research then? Is there anything that you think could be done that is lacking that could improve a British cycling either at grassroots level or at elite level that would increase the medal count? Any particular research that you think could be beneficial for the future? I think certainly at that elite end, there's no there's no shortage of research going on in terms of aerodynamics and you know all, all that good stuff. And I, I think this is something again. I think your listeners will be familiar with the biggest challenge. I think is there is a huge amount of knowledge and research out there, um, and there are lots of different cycling bodies. There is, you know, lots. So we've got it, it just in this country alone. You know, there's Sustrans, there's Cycling UK. There's lots of government work that's been going on. Step one for me is almost a collation piece of just pulling together what we know we know um, rather than saying what new research do we need if we can pull and, and aggregate everything that we know we, we know we already know would be a, a great starting point well that's excellent Judy thanks for talking to me today I think we've covered everything really <laughs> I don't think there's anything else to cover unless there's anything particular that you would like to say? Well, just in terms of, of your listeners, that um, certainly an ongoing theme in my career has been imposter syndrome. You know, so you 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 are constantly thinking somebody's going to tap you on the shoulder and go, "Hang on a second, what are you doing here?" And it would just be a real message for everybody to to have a bit of confidence and if there are areas that you're interested in to go for it um, and certainly I've been fortunate that people have given me opportunities and chances uh, along the way um, and I'm trying to make sure I can do that for, for the next generation coming through but I think we all need to lose our imposter syndrome and have a bit of inner confidence. That's excellent and a really great point to finish on. Thanks very much. Thanks Jackie.